there was a moment in that first session where it was a visceral, it was like I could taste hope again. My life used to feel like I was stuck on autopilot, trapped in the same thought loops, worries, and fears. Then something major happened. Enter psychedelics. My name is Kat Walsh, and you're listening to Trip On This. Join me as we journey together into these mysterious realms, discussing everything from personal transformation, otherworldly experiences, and practical at-home tips. Welcome, fellow traveler, to the land of limitless possibilities. Welcome back, my friends. It's your host, Kat, and today's episode is with Rock Fielding Mellon. Rock is the co-founder and partner of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic fund and incubator of emerging leaders, entrepreneurs, and partnerships. Prior to Beckley Waves, Rock was an elected politician in London for 12 years. He's also the son of Psychedelic Maverick, also known as the Queen of Psychedelics, Amanda Fielding. I found this episode particularly beautiful, with all the ups, downs, and moments of hope, even in the darkest hours. It was such a pleasure to talk to him and hear his story firsthand. Rock Fielding Mellon, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Trip on This. Well, thank you, Kat. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. So I don't always start with people's childhoods when people come on to Trip on This. I don't always say, like, tell me about growing up. However, not everyone had Amanda Fielding as their mother. And so I figured, why don't we start there for people? Talk to us about, first, who is Amanda Fielding, of course, and, and what was childhood growing up for you? Gosh, well, Kat, I've, I've done enough therapy, um, <laughs> whereby if you asked any of my therapists, they would say that's where all my problems started. <laughs> that's um, hilarious. But, um, but, but no, I, um, look, my mum, my Amanda Fielding, is, is an amazing woman. She's, she's just turned 80, um, and she has spent the last almost 60 years, the last 58 years, dedicating really all her energy and focus to trying to understand better and then advocate for um, how psychedelics can be used as tools for expanding human consciousness, helping both individuals and society at large to to heal many of the kind of wounds and divisions that um, we all suffer from. Mm -hmm. She, about 25 years ago, she she was an artist first and an activist. She stood for parliament and um, exhibited in well-known galleries in London, New York, LA. But then 25 years ago, she set up an NGO, uh, a nonprofit called the Beckley Foundation, mm -hmm. which has been together with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelics Studies, um, really at the forefront for the last 25 years of um, the new psychedelic uh, scientific research, which has kind of undergirded what people are now referring to as the psychedelic renaissance. So for her, mm -hmm. it has been a long, long journey. Yeah, growing up with her was, as you can imagine, uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> right. um, there was lots of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, she's incredibly loving and warm. So I, I was very lucky to have her and my dad. They were, they were kind of on the same mission. Um, there were always interesting people and friends. Um, around I was always encouraged to join in adult conversation mm -hmm. from a young age and um 
as I say, lots of fun. Not a huge amount of structure always. Okay. Um, more freedom than structure. Mm -hmm. But there was also, there was, there was always a degree of seriousness. Like okay. they were completely committed to their cause, to what they saw as their sense of purpose and their mission. And mum always instilled in, in my brother and in me a, a very strong work ethic, even though like fun and freedom were were encouraged not at the cost of doing one's work whether that was sure. homework as a child or or later on in life um doing something really meaningful that, that can help others what was your attitude towards psychedelics growing up obviously i mean like you said she was on the absolute forefront of psychedelics i mean it's easy for us to have this or easier at least for us to have this conversation around psychedelics for her, I imagine it was probably like, what, what, yes. what is going on? What is your mom up to, you know, yeah. for your friends and everything trying to, uh, so, yeah, for, for people trying to understand on the outside of this. And most people were, what, what was your attitude towards it? Was it, was it interest or was there a little resentment or what, what, what was the, what was the push pull yeah. there? So I would say that in my kind of young childhood, mm -hmm. I, I, I was pretty unaware. I think they were on psychedelics nearly all the time. <laughs> right. So for me, it was just like, it was just life. I didn't right. know anything else. Yeah. By the time I became, you know, a young adolescent, I'm 44. So I was a kind of a, a young, young teenager in the early 90s in England. There was the John Major government. It was very much back to basics, um, not a kind of psychedelic friendly atmosphere. Definitely like having a mum seeking out opportunities to to talk about how psychedelics can save the world and not just psychedelics but trepanation and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. drilling a hole in her head mm -hmm. um and all other means of kind of expanding consciousness it was not it was it was definitely not the easiest like mum to have i mean i think a lot of children <laughs> yeah, feel a bit sure. embarrassed by their parents mm -hmm. and a lot of children cringe at the kind of what they deem as the you know lack of just nice normal parenting sure. um i suppose i was at the far end of uh <laughs> of not normal parenting that's fair and um and i yeah i look i definitely i definitely slightly bristled and i uh i think i did react mm -hmm. against it i i kind of i i went i was very much from both my mother and her mother my my grandmother peggy who i was very close to growing up mm -hmm. this sense of um work ethic and, and giving back and kind of doing one's duty, doing public service. That was a very strong thread that ran through my family and that I very much took on. But I did at that stage react against and, and bristle against the, 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 the notion of psychedelics as what's going to save the world. Sure, sure. This is a nice segue for me into your role now heading into politics, right? And wanting to take mm. uh what feels like a more maybe like straight straight narrow path right like that that's a different that's a definitely like a a choice where okay you're showing up you're in society this is a role that people understand you were part of the tory party talk to us about that now journey into politics especially coming from yeah. this psychedelic landscape you've hit the nail on the head and that it it was it was my way of in a way 
doing what I knew was expected of me. I ha I had to do something which was more than just making a very comfortable living. I was from from my both my grandmother and my mother. There was a strong expectation that I would dedicate myself to kind of giving back, to giving you know, serving society in some mm -hmm. way. So I, I I knew I wanted to do that, and I kind of needed to do that to to keep in my mum's good books mm -hmm. but I, I wasn't willing to just do what she would have you know she would have loved me to go and become a, a chemist or something like sure. that and um following Albert Hoffman or, or <laughs> yeah Children's yeah books, I bet you know so uh so I wasn't going to do that I wanted to go out find my own path but still within the kind of broader context of of what was expected and I think there was also an element of you know having had a rather unstructured and free childhood I kind of probably yearn for a bit more structure and sure. a bit more, you know, a clear path with with structure there. And and politics was was the path that I chose. And um I I loved it. My my family were pretty apolitical actually. My mum had mm. stood for parliament, but as a kind of uh, almost an art project. Oh, um we didn't really discuss politics much. They weren't uh, partisan one way or the other. So I, I was definitely um, branching out in terms of my family background. And I, I chose to go into local government to start off with. I did have, at the beginning, uh, hopes or, or aspirations of one day going to national government. But I wanted to really learn about kind of on the ground politics. Mm -hmm. And yeah. to me, local government seemed like the best place to do that, where you're working, where you're living, you know the area, you know the people, you're meeting the people that you're having to help and having to talk to. And it was it was wonderful. It was it was really rewarding, meaningful work where I did feel like I was able to help individuals and my my wider community, whether that was um, you know, helping to uh, get new schools built or new public green spaces or new leisure centres or new affordable housing, whether it was supporting local charities or protecting our frontline services against the kind of cuts in funding imposed by central government. Wh wh wherever it was, working casework with individuals or kind of in the town hall trying to get these um, new buildings or services built or, or kind of improved, it, it felt like one was doing important work and one was connected to where one was living it was I, it was it was I very much enjoyed it and found it very rewarding how long were you in government how long were you working with local communities on these projects so I um I was young when I first got elected I, I was 27 when I was first elected that was in 2006 I I, I basically got the bug I I, I, I loved it and mm -hmm. I kept on standing for re-election um and then it was in summer 2017. By then, I'd become deputy leader of, of the council. Mm -hmm. Then an awful tragedy struck. There was a, a tower block in, in the borough where I was um, a councillor, caught fire. Mm -hmm. And 72 people lost their lives. Oh, um, and it was, it, it was just utterly devastating. I mean, um, there were, as you can imagine, hundreds of families had their lives ripped apart and and the grief the shock the anger spread you know right through not just our local community but through i think london indeed into into the wider country it was it was a real it was awful i'm so um, sorry and i was in my role i i was a witness actually of the i i saw i saw the the fire on that mm. night um i was there outside and um 
and then in the aftermath and in, in, in I, I was involved in the aftermath in my role as a as deputy leader and um it was it was it was it, after a couple of weeks i'm afraid that it was it was too much for me and um i i was kind of a broken i anyway i, I resigned and that was the end of of my political oh, career so sorry my heart what a okay so through the resignation now i i can only imagine what a shock when i it's interesting when i hear stories like this with life right how this is the the unexpected around life that we we think we kind of know the path that we are that we're on and then sometimes things are out of our control and life happens first of all how were you at that time like where were you at and 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 what was the rebuilding process for you not just on the outside but but on the inside when something like that happens yes um no it was and i I want to be very clear that what i went through was was nothing compared to the the grief and the horror that so many others Mm. suffered Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and you know i i my my heart still bleeds and it will forever for the people who lost their their loved ones that night and had their lives turned upside down my my you know mine um i was my life was also shattered it was an earthquake and um it it was um it uh, you know i i i lost my uh i lost my career i lost my community i i had to move home and i was i was I was, I think I was a broken man. I was in a very deep gloom, a kind of dark, nihilistic hole for, for quite a while. I, having been someone who really was probably naive and um, overconfident and, you know, believed too much in the possibility of, of what I could get done, sure. I went in the opposite direction and um, <clears throat> lost any, any faith in being able to do anything worthwhile or good I after that I I kind of felt that any good intention inevitably leads one down the path to hell so yes this was now 2018 2019 the psychedelic renaissance was was kind of bubbling it was it was on its way Michael Pollan's book had come out Mm -hmm. a lot of the amazing research that the Beckley Foundation had been doing with people like Imperial College had kind of already started spawning companies like Compass Pathways and the 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 work they're doing. It it was kind of in the ether. And of course, my mother had quite early on said to me that I should consider doing psychedelic assisted therapy. And again, that kind of infuriated me and I bristled and was like, oh, no, no. <laughs> um, and um, but it, you know, after a while of being in that. I knew, luckily, I, I knew that I was in a hole and yeah. I did want to get out of mm. the hole. Mm-hmm. And um, and I then basically decided that I would try psychedelic-assisted therapy, but I wasn't going to let my mum know or let her arrange it for me. Do, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, yeah. And, um, do, do my own thing. So um, so I, I, I did. I, I, I managed to, to figure out how to do it. I found a very great guide facilitator to do that with me who who took me through the preparation session first um guided therapeutic session psilocybin um, or ayahuasca uh, psilocybin mm-hmm. psilocybin is 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 lawful in jamaica uh-huh. um it's, yeah. it's not against the law so um to me that's kind of important mm-hmm. 
and uh, it kind of completely turned my life around. I um, there was a moment in that first session where it was a visceral. It was like I could taste hope again or Oof. faith. It was like yeah. suddenly I I knew it wasn't like a kind of it wasn't a, a mental idea. It was a lived experience that life is full of possibility and I had a faith in in being able to do something worthwhile again and um I had some very you know the integration after that first session was 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 wonderful really helped clarify some of the kind of lessons that had come up I I I came out and I I suddenly knew that um well first of all I knew that my mum had been right all along um <laughs> uh, which, it's like it's like the ego it's which, like the psychedelics and the ego you're like okay mom yeah, fine I get it, it. Was, uh, <laughs> I had to that was you know I I, I joke that I've had to have a lot of therapies to deal with the trauma of telling mum that she was right all <laughs> along you know that was that was really yeah, that's difficult. great that's great um, but but you know I I I realized that Look, it was it was an easier decision for me to take. Suddenly, I, I realized that I really do have an opportunity to help others in a in a really meaningful way on their own to do that inner work. You know, to to kind of to get access safely, mm. lawfully, mm. equitably to these incredible tools. And um, basically, having had that, you know, really transformational, uh, like life. I don't want to overdo it, but I, you know, I do consider it almost life-saving single experience. I realized that I had kind of somehow stumbled across my, um, my, my real calling. There's, um, I, I can't remember the name. There's a German theologian that I heard, um, had a quote saying that your vocation or calling is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep needs. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I do. I, 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 my gladness, I really do like being of service to society. I get great satisfaction and meaning from that. But I realized that as it turned out, the world did not have a deep need for another posh Tory politician. <laughs> um, right. But I'm what, sure you did great things there too, though. I mean, give yourself what, some credit. <laughs> what, what I think the world, or at least what my mum needed was was help yeah. in in furthering the mission that she had spent by that stage 50 years mm. slogging away for. And so I, I felt that I had found a real calling for me. For me, the great realization was the difference between psychedelics by themselves used recreationally or psychedelics used with real intention for for kind of personal development, for healing, for transformation, mm-hmm. but in a guided, careful set and setting. Mm-hmm. With with you know, I think it's really important to have that that therapy side, that mm-hmm. that guidance. So for me, my personal mission became trying to help ensure that we can get lawful, responsible, safe but also equitable access to these um, life-changing therapies. I, for me, psychedelics, I, lots of people call them medicines. I, I don't really think of them as medicines, not in the Western sense of a medicine, do you know, which mm-hmm. if, if we have a, a virus or a, sure. a bug, we take the medicine, it makes us better. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't think of psychedelics like that. To me, psychedelics are much more of a tool mm -hmm. which, you know, we can use to help fix, heal, grow ourselves. Yeah. They, I really view psychedelics as a kind of gateway drug to inner work, yeah. to deep therapy. And it, it's one amongst many tools that people can use, but it is a, a very powerful tool which needs to be treated with real reverence mm -hmm. and real respect mm -hmm. and real care. Yeah, that really in the last whatever it is, four or five years has been um been what I've I've dedicated myself towards doing. And I'm very lucky to be my mother's son and to to have the opportunity to to help her and to work with my my brother along that same mission. I mean, that is the most fun. And I just I think for people listening, the also the the joy of your own, like the the growth and the personal development, even with your mom, right? The fact that hear you it was always kind of there but you needed to set out on your own journey and do things your way and come to it in your own time and your own path and even your own journey right the way that you go about it to finally come full circle to yeah. you know like re-meet with you know like in many ways like your parents can also be uh, like that kind of like soul tribe kind of thing where where there is a joint mission that all of you were born together to now create something even bigger and that you all hold now what feels like a piece to this puzzle now with Beckley Wave, right? Which I'd love for you to talk right. about. So she's, so, you know, Amanda, who's been really spearheading that research piece of it. I know I've had Neil Markey yeah. on the show who's really spearheaded the retreat aspect of it and yes. actually bringing these. And now with yourself, uh, finding ways to fund these projects, right? Let's talk about exactly. Beckley Wave now. So, so yeah, so um, look, my, as I, I said, mom, she's, uh, she's the founder and still active director of the Beckley Foundation, which is a nonprofit and has always had kind of two main uh, objectives. One is doing this very kind of cutting edge scientific research to help us understand how and why psychedelics can be these, these incredible tools for, for furthering consciousness and for treating, you know, the kind of epidemic of, of mental illnesses that um, our society is suffering from. But also to actually, she's always been a, a, a big advocate of drug policy reform. Mm -hmm. And um, her and Rick Doblin of MAPS are kind of very old friends and colleagues. And it was really the, the policy reform efforts that really brought them together. And the mm -hmm. science is, is needed as evidence to have a, sure. an evidence-based yes. policy. So, you know, mum is still very active in the foundation. She's still got incredible uh, new research projects kind of bubbling away um, with leading universities and institutions both in the US and in Europe. And then my, my brother is uh, Cosmo. He is leading a company called Beckley SciTech, which is a, a biotech business, a drug development business, which is taking some of the compounds through the clinical trials mm -hmm. um, to get approval at the FDA or the MHRA in, in the UK to be pharmaceutical medicines. Now, you know, we, that's, an, that's a necessary first step because given the current legislation, you know, it, it's the only way that there is going to be lawful access to these, um, these compounds and psychedelic-assisted therapy in the near future in, in countries like the UK and the US. Mm -hmm. That's the second pillar of the kind of Beckley platform mm -hmm. is Beckley SciTech on the drug development side. And then as, the as we were kind of setting up that, 
we realized though, we're very cognizant of the fact that psychedelic medicines, but you know, pharmacy are not like your normal pharmaceutical medicines. It is a new model. As I was saying, it's not just the the drug, it's not just a pharmacological approach, mm -hmm. it's pharmaco pharmacology and psychology. It's yes. it's really the the assisted therapy, which is crucial. And our current medical kind of infrastructure framework care delivery system is just not set up for psychedelic assisted therapy mm -hmm. and so we you know if we were going to be working and getting those drugs approved as pharmaceutical medicines we knew that we also have a responsibility to build the kind of operational infrastructure and all the ancillary services to enable that safe legal high quality psychedelic assisted therapy and so Beckley Waves is the third pillar on our platform, which is a venture studio dedicated to identifying the critical gaps and then either building or doing very early strategic investments in and supporting and mentoring the kind of entrepreneurs and leaders, people like Neil at Beckley Retreats and, and John and Shrell and Deb at Beckley Academy. And so that that's so Beckley Waves kind of co-founded Beckley Retreats with Neil, it co-founded Beckley Academy with John, and we've also um, supported other companies in the space like Journey Clinical um, or Homecoming or Luminate. So we're trying to really identify the critical needs mm -hmm. and then also identify the, the leaders who we think are really mission aligned and really mm -hmm. have the talent and the skills to build important, durable, sustainable businesses. We're wanting to build these very mindfully and carefully. We're not, we're not kind of rushing, you know, we're not joining in the gold rush where we've yeah. got a very long-term view. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's really where, where I'm focused. So everything on the non-drug development side around access and care delivery and um, helping support that. I mean, it, I think the, the thing that strikes me that's so wonderful to hear is you know, there's a there's this idea that like money coming into psychedelics, that whole gold rush aspect is somehow compromising psychedelics. But the truth is, is that it's money that is a critical aspect of moving these projects forward and putting things in place. And when you can actually have money work for us, <laughs> right, like mm -hmm. for projects that are going to actually help people that are like you're saying, long-term vision and goal and not just how can we cash out when it's time Absolutely. and just, right? Like it's just, it's just the, it's the idea that like there's nothing that's inherently good or not good. It's all in yeah. the way in which it's used. And so money is I, in many ways such an important aspect of this to move it forward for more people to have access. It is. And look, my when, you know, when this kind of new, uh, the kind of for-profit, when it became apparent that there was going to be for-profit businesses coming into the psychedelic space, mm -hmm. I think my mother was, she was a little bit ambivalent. Mm -hmm. You know, she 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 was wary, you know, we've seen what happened with cannabis in mm -hmm. Canada, you know, a bit of a gold rush, people coming in, cutting corners. Yep. And it, with psychedelics, if people cut corners, they're so powerful that, you know, if something goes wrong, that could create another backlash like yes. we saw in 1970. And so she was wary of that. But at the same time, and this is what I, I'm kind of, you know, ever more proud of her and what she's achieved because she's got a really fine kind of sense of strategy, but also a pragmatic tactician. Like yes. If you go right back to where she founded the Beckley Foundation, she 
you know, she was there in the 60s when when Leary and others were kind of trying to turn on the world. And she didn't approve of that strategy then. Like trying to take on the establishment kind of head on, mm-hmm. you get the reaction like we got in 1970 in the Controlled Substance Act. So, you know, with the Beckley Foundation, she always viewed it as this kind of, she describes it as her Trojan horse. She's like, she's not going to go, you know, up against the establishment battlements. She's going to use the establishment, you know, places like Imperial College London, Johns Hopkins, these kind of great bastions of institutional excellence and research, get them to do the science, which like unravels the the policy. And in a way, it's the same with now. Like we we have, you know, philanthropy is, has been absolutely essential. It's been a totally necessary first step, but it just isn't going to provide enough resources for that vision to be realized. Yeah. We do need the kind of private cap- capital to come in, mm-hmm. but it has to be done carefully. Sure. It has to be done really with that careful, long-term, mission-aligned um, driven. So we are very careful in both the investors that we work with mm-hmm. and then with the with the entrepreneurs mm-hmm. that we work with, you know, making sure that they share that sense of long-term mission is is critical to us. Mm-hmm. I, I love hearing, thank you for that. I also love hearing Amanda's approach at the time um, because, and, and, and why everybody holds a, a role in this whole you know, where we're at today, Leary, obviously the, taking on the establishment and that movement needing to be also very important, very prevalent to the word getting out, if you will, right? Like, let's just call mm. it that. Even though it might have put it back into the closet, it yeah. it suddenly exposed a lot of people to it. But I also love then, it just strikes me as a very feminine approach to working with just in in business and strategy which is not with a fight and more with like a sense of collaboration and um when you don't put up someone's defenses and you actually basically say like this is ironclad because y'all like science and we're gonna go the slow steady route to show you like you're if there's there's no there's no argument here when you've got the numbers right when you got that It's hard to I find. I, I do think I do think it took a, a kind of a and look, she's not people like Rick have also been yeah. amazing in the work that he's done at Maps. But I do think that that kind of feminine kind of intuition to mm-hmm. kind of work with the system and change from within, I think has been, you know, masterful by my mother. And I'm as I say, I'm I'm very proud of how she's she's maneuvered that. And I have to say for you too, I mean, but this is like, I mean, just getting into the the, the feminine, the masculine, having now your expertise coming in and that more masculine approach around raising capital and this uh, you know, the pragmatics, if you will, that that to me is like that perfect balance to actually then create something big and meaningful. Yeah is is to have is to have all those pieces in place i i I hope so and i i think so look there are i think it's doing it you know conscious of the challenges Mm -hmm. conscious of the tensions and Mm -hmm. the frictions um and that's where actually you know it's it's when you come up against resistance and hurdles that creativity can spark and i think being able to combine as you say that feminine approach with the masculine I, i think that's where we can do this in a in a 
newer way that you know yeah. in, a, in a kind of way that psychedelic assisted therapy warrants it can't just be the same old um it has to kind of to use uh, ken wilber's phrase transcend and include mm-hmm. um the current paradigm so we're not yeah. kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but it does need to transcend it does need to reform it does need to to change and i think there is you know, I think there is a that this is the beginning of a new paradigm of mental health mm-hmm. and well-being and psychedelics as I say I think are just one tool that are going to be part of ushering in this new paradigm but at Beckley waves we're we're you know we're so excited by the the people that we're meeting and being able to work with who are all seeing this kind of the the way in which this new paradigm can yeah. can start forming and working across across the board but there are challenges and I think one can't hide from those. Mm-hmm. Um, we've actually just recently, we're very lucky to get people like Rick Doblin and Paul Stamets and um, Peter Vide and Dingle Spence to, to join a, a new kind of uh, what we're calling an ethics council to help us to really hold us as the businesses to, to account and make sure that we are keeping that mission front and center. And it's a, it's a really useful forum to be able to have these um these you know they're 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 important sometimes difficult discussions and challenges but i think by by facing up to them and discussing them openly and bringing in more experts from relevant fields that's how i hope that we are going to find those those creative solutions i love that and those and those the people that you mentioned hold such gravitas in the space that they're such influencers right in terms Mm. of the yeah like when when Paul Stamets says something about, you know, the fungi and whatnot, like people just pay attention when he really, and so there might be a little back and forth. It sounds like with him and getting into a place where um, there's, whether it's compromise or just some kind of an agreement that once he's there, he can also hold that as a case for the community because there's so many pockets of the psychedelic space, right? You got the activists and then the, you know, the people that raise the money and then the researchers that have been there. And, and so um, those, those voices, it sounds like very smartly by you guys to, to make sure that they do have a seat at the table to help kind of give that guiding North star or moral compass or whatever, like the guiding star A North star sounds nice. You know, my, my last question for you is just how far, how far off do you feel that we are from more widely adopted psychedelics you know let's let's we can we could start with the uk i mean how far along how far away do you think we are to accessibility legality even no i i actually think the uk is quite a long way away okay i'm sad to say Mm -hmm. Um, but our system doesn't allow for the sorts of um you know ballot initiatives that oregon and colorado have have done in in the us where they've decriminalized psychedelic therapy again actually from our point of view it's still difficult we haven't yet entered those markets as a business because it's still uh illegal under federal law and, and we only operate lawfully yeah but you know for for people needing access i'm i'm hopeful that they can get there actually one of my colleagues at beckley wave zap Hagney writes a wonderful newsletter called The Trip Report, mm-hmm. um, thetripreport.com, which he, he's written a lot about this, the kind of um, 
the activists and the scientists. Mm -hmm. um, that was last week's uh, newsletter. So we don't have that in the UK. The the US, obviously, state by state, decriminalization is, is, is I think, happening and is going to carry on happening more and more, either through ballot initiatives or through the legislatures. Um, and then there's the other model, which is what Australia has just done, mm -hmm. which is where they've kind of rescheduled psilocybin and MDMA so that it, even before the, those drugs are taken through the, the, the clinical trials and approved by the equivalent of the FDA, doctors are going to be able to prescribe. So they're still, they're still controlled substances, but they're going to be able to be subscribed for people suffering from depression or PTSD. So I actually think that if, if I was going to make a guess about where I see the next move happening in a country like the UK, I think it would probably be more following the Australia Mm -hmm. model yeah um so it will still be medicalized use of psychedelics will be the next step um so for people who are just wanting it for for personal growth they'll have to go to countries like jamaica or the netherlands sure. where where you can do it lawfully that sounds to me then that the next step if it's about rescheduling is it's about having the kind of people that it's like it's a type of activist that can speak the language of government and DEA and yeah. in our and at least in the US and you know can can sit in a boardroom and wear the suit and look apart it, and speak it, to it in a way that is just yeah in a way that just makes like that feels like it has to be the focus of the conversation it's like how to continue to have those conversations in a way that the people that are making those decisions can hear Absolutely. I think that's that's essential. And I think it's increasingly happening. Do you yeah. know, I, I think, do you know, it's it's moving, it's in the process of moving beyond the kind of counterculture into the mainstream. It is becoming something which kind of people who think of themselves as kind of responsible, proper grown-ups with serious jobs and real responsibilities, mm -hmm. it's no longer like weird for them to be thinking about reading interested in psychedelic assisted therapy yeah so I, and i think i think you know there are more and more people um on the kind of policy reform and in lobbying who are doing that indeed there's an effort that my mother and i are, are, are part of trying to promote rescheduling of psilocybin through the who in in geneva yeah. So um, that would be another yeah. angle. Although my only prayer when I hear people that think they're like grown up and very serious, my only prayer is for them to just like get a little silly and have fun and let loose and just like, well, absolutely, you know, like absolutely. the joy of life, like just kind of inviting in a little bit of play and fun and, and realizing like that's um, both can exist at once, absolutely. you know? Absolutely. Rock, what a fun conversation. I'm so sorry about a little bit of the technical difficulties. Sorry, listeners. But uh, it was so wonderful to hear your story. What a beautiful arc between just just with everything and how your journey came right back to helping this movement in the way that you're doing. I'm very much looking forward to meeting you in Denver. What's the latest? What's the latest coming up for Beckley Wave for yourself? Anything else you want to share with us? Um, well, Kat, no, I'm, I mean, the, the, the next big thing is, is Denver, Psychedelic Science 23. Mm -hmm. I'll be there with my mother, my brother, and a lot of the teams from the various Beckley family companies. And I'm very much looking forward to you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the work you're doing to help get the, get the word out and help people, you know, think about this in an informed, careful way. I think it's it's great what you're doing. Awesome. And, and thank you. Thank you. And for everyone, as always, trip on this.